Thanks, thanks uh, Brother Scott. Lovely to see you all. Uh, and it's great to be here. I've heard about this conference for a few years and felt ripped off that we started our church 12 years ago. <laughs> and I still don't know how Chris is here because he, he's been planning too long to be part of this. Uh, but no, it's great, uh, it's great to be here and enjoy uh, this couple of days. And uh, I'm really looking forward to these guys. Uh, Scott's my mentor, you see. Uh, so, uh, you know, I haven't done it for a while, but we catch up and he... he tells me how to run church and all that sort of stuff, so uh, it'll be good to hear him tell me how to run marriage uh, as well. <clears throat> now, what I'm, um, I'm going to open up a couple passages from 1 John, and uh, I want to start by just uh, showing you a song, uh, and I want you to think why this is such a popular song. Uh, it's a Beatles song, and don't get the wrong impression, I, I wasn't born when this song came out. Uh, but I want you to think, it's one of those enduring songs, and I want you to think, why is this song so popular? So let's see how this works, and hopefully Mark's going to support me, you know, support me here. Here we go, there's a bit of volume, is there? That never happens in a church plan, does it? You know, when the audio visual goes wrong. Here we go, Picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been Lives in a dream, waits at the window Wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door Who is it for, all the lonely people? Where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Music videos have come a long way uh, in the last 20 or so years, or it's probably 40 years, uh, really. Uh, and uh, uh, you could probably put that one together in PowerPoint, you know, uh, pretty quick these days. But um, what do you reckon? Why do you think it's such a popular song? Why do you think it resonated uh, with so many people, even today? Any thoughts out there? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people are lonely. No one sees them. Yeah. Routine of life. There's, there's lots of people, mm. but there's no community. They're all doing their little routine yeah. without any touching each other. Yeah, so, the, so um, the root, Kim's just saying the routines of life. There's lots of people bustling up against each other, but no real deep connections uh, between people. Uh, yep? I think also the futility of religion. Okay, right. Okay, so the futility of religion where you think uh, here are these people who m maybe saw church as a way of meeting their needs for loneliness, but it hasn't delivered. Uh, the, the Father Mackenzie, even, minist even Christian ministry hasn't delivered for him a sense of meeting his needs for uh, loneliness and relationship. And Eleanor Rigby dies alone for them, church has not delivered on their need for companionship and relationship and so on. Yeah, And um, it's, it's really interesting in the, in the film clip how you, the camera sort of pans over this crowd, but it's, it, the words are, are, look at all the lonely people. And that's the irony, isn't it? And in a Facebook generation, you know, it's the same thing, isn't it? So many friends, and yet so many people are so deeply lonely. Um, I read an article just this week in the Sydney Morning Herald uh, and it was about loneliness and they were saying that loneliness is the epidemic of our age. 
Uh, it's, it's a greater illness than anything else. And they actually um, interviewed a guy in Darlinghurst. So I don't know whether it was you, Toby. Were you in a cafe recently in Darlinghurst? No. Anyway, um, let me tell you what he said. Um, so he said, Sydney can be a very lonely place. This is the most dense, densely populated area in the country. There are many coffee shops, uh, more coffee shops between here and Bondi Beach than any other area in the country, yet it's still so lonely. Uh, and I reckon it, it, the song resonates because nothing is more important than relationships. Even for people who have given up and become jaded, we all recognise that relationships are the most important, valuable thing they're the thing we crave for more than anything else, and yet so rarely is it that they deliver on the sort of uh, hopes that we have for them. Even marriage fails to deliver so often the sort of companionship and relationship that we long for. Uh, and we know why this is the case. It's because God is a relational God. He's created us for relationship, uh, and yet the sort of relationships that we're made for and that we crave for are so hard to find. Now, what's all this got to do with 1 John? Uh, the answer is everything. Uh, just have a look at those first few verses. The start of a letter written by the Apostle John. And I want you to think, what is John's purpose in writing this letter? Have a quick look. See if you can come up with John's purpose in writing this letter. Okay, someone want to shout it out? Fellowship, yeah, there in verse 3. We proclaim to you, John says, what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, so, yeah, John's purpose is fellowship and the Greek word that lies behind that there in your outlines, koinonia, uh, and, you know, those of you who studied at college know about that. It, it simply means sharing something in common. But I suspect, you suspect that John is using it in quite a profound sort of way. Uh, so, so when you read John's Gospel and the way he uh, records Jesus describing relationships, um, have a look at John 14, verse 20. I've actually printed some verses on your outline if you... Um, if you want to just do a shortcut. John fourteen twenty. on that day you'll realise that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Um, it, it's that idea of mutual indwelling uh, or if you were with Doyley in lectures at Moore College, you know, perichoretic union, all that sort of stuff. Um, but it, uh, and Jesus, So Jesus kept on using that language, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. And as he spoke to his disciples, he spoke about a time when they would be in Jesus and Jesus would be in them. Uh, and so when John begins his letter and speaks of fellowship, I'm convinced this is the sort of character of relationship that he's got in mind, that, that rich, intimate indwelling uh, of interpersonal relationship. Uh, but there's another purpose for which John writes. Can anyone yell that one out? pretty obvious yet yeah, joy yeah verse four we write this to make our joy complete and again you hear echoes from john's gospel like john fifteen eleven. jesus talking to his disciples i've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete uh, and it's just lovely to hear this sort of language isn't it because jesus 
Ministry is, uh, is about meeting our deepest needs for fellowship and joy. And in the end, I don't think they're two purposes. Uh, in the end, I think they're one and the same. And that is uh, true, complete joy is about experiencing rich, deep, lasting relationship. Uh, it's about joyful fellowship. That is why John is writing, so that we might know fellowship and joy. Now, are you motivated to listen more? Right? You should just be motivated because it's God's word. But surely, if, if, if you're reading a letter that promises to deliver fellowship and joy in a sort of relationship that we were created to enjoy, then you've got to listen intently, don't you? So, this joyful fellowship, how do we um, gain access? Now, that's what, uh, that's what the rest of the letter's about. But have a look in the first couple of verses. And I want you to listen carefully and, and see if uh, there's other parts of the Bible that echo in your mind as I read it out loud. So uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, uh, we have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And we proclaim so that you may have fellowship and so that our joy may be complete. Okay, quick, um, just quick conversation with the person next to you and hopefully it's your wife, uh, although not all of you. Uh, so quick conversation, what do you reckon, what parts of the Bible uh, echo? Uh, does that sound similar to uh, the opening verses of 1 John chapter 1? Okay, right, let's uh, see what you've got. So what's the obvious one? John 1, yeah. So, uh, it's, and it's the same guy writing it, so you might start all these writings this way. Uh, but very similar language. Uh, so John 1, um, so John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And he goes on to talk about how the word became flesh. Uh, and so you sort of get these words flashing up uh, that are in, in the start of both um, writings. Beginning, word, life, light, um, and so there's definite echo going on there, and it's all about Jesus, no doubt about it. But do these verses sort of raise any other part of the Bible? Do you, do you hear any other echoes here in John 1, in 1 John 1? Yeah, and what, what gives that? Okay, did anyone pick up that vibe? Uh, resurrection sort of language. Um, so when you hear words like appeared, seen, touched, uh, when you talk about life, but the resurrection life, uh, it really echoes, it, it's the same vocabulary as the resurrection narratives. Um, and for when you hear an eyewitness of the resurrection using words like, we saw, we touched, he appeared, uh, then it, it, it's pretty hard not to see a connection with the resurrection Especially if you go chase back those references, it's just utterly obvious. Now, here's a question, though. If you pick up a 
commentary on 1 John, chapter 1, all the commentaries spot the reference to John 1. Almost none of them, none of them that I've read, pick up the reference to John 20 and Luke 24. What do you reckon? Uh, Do you find that a little bit interesting? Why do you think that's the case? Why Why are the commentators so quick to spot the connections with John 1, but so reluctant, it seems, to spot the connection with John 20 or Luke 24? Any, any thoughts? Well, I'll tell you. I've, I've been thinking about I've been preaching this, so I've been thinking a lot about it. Uh, so it is because the assumption of most commentaries is that one John is addressing the era of Gnosticism, uh, and that is um, uh, an idea uh, of a denial of the incarnate Jesus. That is, Gnosticism, some sort of denial that God became flesh in the man Jesus. Um, and so if, if that's what you think is the background of 1 John, then you're much more reluctant to see John 20 type language. You're much more likely to see incarnation John 1 sort of language uh, at the start of 1 John. Um, but recently, a number of scholars have challenged that assumption. Does anyone, anyone pick this up? Uh, been hearing about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I've been reading um, a a PhD by Matthew Jensen. Um, I don't know if any of you guys know him, Um, but it's it's really excellent. It's been really helpful, and uh, it's one of the best things I've read, you know, in a long time. It's great. Uh, But what he argues is that the context of one John, the sort of error that is being addressed, is not Gnosticism, but rather John is writing as the apostle to the Jews to Jewish Christians who are feeling the pressure of exclusion from Judaism. Okay? So he's writing, apostle to the Jews, writing to Jewish Christians who are feeling the pressure of exclusion from Judaism. They have come to believe Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, but their fellow Jews are saying, if you want to believe in Jesus and follow him, then you are cutting yourself off from the faith of Israel. Uh, You are turning your backs on Judaism. And John writes this letter to this group of sort of persecuted minority Jewish Christians to say, no, it's not you who have left Judaism. It's they who have left Judaism. It's those who fail to recognize Jesus as the Christ. They are the ones who have cut themselves off from the true religion of Israel but you have entered the fulfilment of Judaism in recognising Jesus as the Christ. Um, and within that sort of context, you can see how resurrection becomes so crucial because the resurrection is the great proof that Jesus is the Christ. You know, that's what you see in the preaching of Acts, isn't it? When they, when they seek to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the resurrection is the key proof that they bring out, they bring to bear to persuade their fellow Jews that, yes, uh, Jesus really is the Christ risen from the dead. Uh, And that's exactly what you get in the book of Acts. And and as they preach this gospel, there's persecution, opposition, but some embrace the message. And what happens when people embrace the message? It it creates fellowship. And so you get these beautiful phrases like in um, 
Acts chapter 2, verse 42, straight after Pentecost, where 3,000 people become Christians. I've got the little quote there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Or a couple of chapters later, just after you know, John and Peter have been released from prison, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, this is what church planting is all about. Uh, proclaiming Jesus, the risen Christ, and as we do, we will meet opposition. Right? That's always been the case. There will be people who resist, who despise that message because they do not acknowledge God and they do not want to acknowledge his king. But as we proclaim Jesus, the risen Christ, there will be some who embrace the message And it will create fellowship. That's what church planting is all about. Creating fellowship through the proclamation of Jesus, the risen Christ. Uh, And it's helpful to be reminded of that sometimes. Because I know it just sounds pretty obvious. But sometimes we do get stuck um, with a wrong idea of what's going to create fellowship. Uh, So sometimes we try to create fellowship on the basis of creating a really cool vibe to our church or of creating a really friendly atmosphere in our church. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. We want our churches to be friendly, and yet, cool, if you can pull it off, then, you know, it's a good thing to do. Uh, So, by all means, I'm not saying be uncool and unfriendly, but (laughs) we've actually got to put our confidence... The focus of our confidence has to be on the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the risen King... Uh, that is what creates genuine Christian fellowship. And that's why as John starts his letter, he says, we are proclaiming to you what we have seen and heard because we want to create fellowship. We want you to join with us and with God. Uh, But there's a barrier to joyful fellowship uh, and the barrier is the persistent problem that's always been there, the problem of sin. How does sin impact or threaten fellowship with God and with his people? Now, I want you to listen to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, because he's been talking about this message that he's proclaiming. And it's all about, we're assuming it's all about Jesus, you know, who we've seen and touched and so on. But listen to chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. Now, it'd be interesting how, if you were writing this letter, how would you finish that sentence? Uh, It's pretty obvious you'd you'd write something about Jesus, wouldn't it, isn't it? But it's interesting how John finishes that sentence, isn't it? This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Uh, And you think, oh, man, that's not the way I would express the gospel message. But if John's writing to a Jewish audience... Jewish Christians, they would be really familiar with those ideas that God is light. You know, Psalm 27, I think it is. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? And as God, as God spoke in the Old Testament about the coming of his kingdom, it, he used the language of light breaking in, the dawn arriving. Uh, and as light would stream into our world, so it would drive out the darkness uh, and the light became synonymous with God and his kingdom breaking into our world 
driving out corruption and evil and greed and idolatry and all that sort of stuff. And so there's the Old Testament background. And then you come to John's gospel and, and it's clear that he has identified Jesus as the light. He is the, one, the agent who brings in God's kingdom. Uh, so John 3, this is the verdict. Light has come into our world, but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. They're such telling verses, aren't they? Now, the light comes in, but people love living in the darkness and they hate the light. And you see that with Jesus' ministry so clearly, don't you? Uh, Even amongst the religious leaders and the Jewish people who seemed so religious and upright... Uh, they despised Jesus because he threatened to expose their sin and they had spent their lives putting themselves on a pedestal as if they were somehow better than the rest. You know, like the Pharisee who stands at the temple and prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like the rest of humanity. You know, I'm not a murderer or an adulterer or I'm not, not like this tax collector. Or you know, the rich young man who comes to Jesus, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus mentions the commands and he says, well, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Uh, And there was a real temptation amongst the Jews in Jesus' day when they thought about sin was to minimise sin in their life, even to deny the existence of sin in their life as if somehow they'd moved beyond it, uh, as if somehow they were better than the rest. And it's really not hard when you play that comparison game, is it, to actually look at someone else and go, yeah, I, I am pretty good because if I compare myself to you know, this guy over here, then, man, you know, I, I look great. Um, and I reckon we pastors face that same temptation. I think it's really easy to look at the religious leaders of Jesus' day and really uh, you know, put them as these extreme, you know, corrupt religious people but we are, we are the guys who handle the word of God professionally. And I think the temptations that they fell into are the temptations that we will face. And sin is a big one, isn't it? So the temptation of sin, uh, you know, we will always be preaching about forgiveness of sins and so on. But sometimes we get stuck in sin and it becomes a bit embarrassing, really. Because here I am, I stand up the front each week, I preach the word of God, I call people to repent, and yet there's this sin in my life that just, it's persistent. And I've, I've, I've revealed it to the congregation once, but now, do I do it again, or do I actually start hiding uh, or minimising my, my sin or denying? And it's, it's really subtle, but can you see what a temptation it is for us to actually start minimising and denying our sin like, like the Jews in the first century were doing. Um, so so just, I just want to pause and say, what, what is that sin in your life that you are tempted to minimise or deny? Now, is there sin that you just, you just kept to yourself uh, and you're not willing to be open about? Because I... I reckon John has a warning for us that the character of living in the darkness is denying sin or minimising sin. Have a look in verse 6. 
three false claims that John picks up on. Verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Um, I've got a little even spot for a sort of, uh, you can fill in a little um, on page 7. If you're taking notes, you know, feel welcome to turn up there. But, but um, just have a look. Claim 1, I have fellowship with God. Counter evidence, walking in the darkness. Uh, and I reckon the expression that John is particularly picking up on is minimising or denying sin. And the verdict, well, you're a liar. You're not walking by the truth. Uh, and then the alternative that he gives is, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, it's not about being perfect. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Or claim two, uh, claim two, verse eight, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it's not, so the counter evidence is just what's obvious to everyone except you, and that is you're a sinner. Uh, you do sin, uh, and so the verdict is you're self-deceived, the truth is not in you. Uh, verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so claim number three uh, and uh, verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So the same sort of thing. I've not sinned, counter evidence, well, pretty obvious. Verdict, making God to be a liar, God's word is not in you. But again, he gives the alternative at the start of chapter 2. My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin, but if anyone does, because the Christian life is not about being perfect or free from sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. And there's that beautiful word there. Um, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 2, the propitiation word, hilasmos. Uh, and the whole idea is that God offered Jesus as a sacrifice to turn aside God's wrath. And, uh, and so, you know, I know I'm speaking to pastors, and I know you guys are teaching on this everywhere, but it's, it's so important to remember we do not deal with our own sin, and we must never deny it or minimise it. We keep coming to Jesus, the one who has died for purification for our sins, he is the one that deals with our sin. And as pastors, what we need to be doing is to model confession of our own sin. Uh, and that will not only be, that's not only the basis of our fellowship with God, but it's also the basis of our fellowship with one another. When we put ourselves on a pedestal and hide our sin... It's, it's a dangerous territory to be in with God, but it also inhibits fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Um, now, I don't know what my time frame is. I've got a few questions to sort of challenge you with uh, to conclude, but is anyone, can anyone tell me when I need to be standing down uh, and then I can work out whether we've got time for questions? I'm going to go question five. All right, all right, one or two questions. Anyone got any sort of questions or <coughs> things you want to throw into the mix? Yeah. Yeah. And seeing the connection to the resurrection. My observant wife noticed connection to uh, Genesis 
Yeah. And creation. And so to what extent might new creation be an idea? Ah, uh, yeah, okay. So to what extent might new creation be an yeah. idea? Yeah. And I guess even on this stuff, like us being part of a new created or a recreated people like mm. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you heard the suggestion that um, in in one John one, Andrew's observant wife, Adele, uh, uh, the Kiwis, right? Are about to be Kiwis. Uh, so notice that uh, there's connection with Genesis chapter one sort of language, and it's there in John one as well. Uh, and so Andrew's wondering, or Adele's wondering, whether there's some sort of suggestion of new creation sort of ideas, and I. I, I yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever because the new covenant ideas, are, John, 1 John is dripping with new covenant and I take it new creation ideas all the way through. Yeah, and we'll see that a lot more tomorrow. Yeah, Toby. Yeah. Yeah, so Toby's just saying uh, the idea of walking in the light or walking in the darkness, sometimes uh, it can uh, feel a bit like a perfectionism in the Christian life. And I think the whole of 1 John can, be, can point you in that direction if it's taught wrongly because uh, that's not where it's heading you. And, and we'll see more about that. Uh, it's a letter about confidence for Christians, not about making us feel undermined in our confidence. Yeah, so when... when when, when John talks about light and dark, he's not saying, oh, I made a decision that stepped me into the darkness. I made a decision that brought me back into the light. It's not a, I'm jumping from dark to light. It's, it's, it's the realm. It's like the, God's kingdom has come, the light has dawned, and we show ourselves to be people who are living in the light as we put our trust in Jesus, find purification from sin, and it will then express itself in a life of love. But yeah, it's 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 entering that realm of God's kingdom, rather than uh, living. It's it's not something that you sort of jump in and out of as you do something wrong. Oh, I've stepped into the darkness. I've got to step back into the light, and so on. Yeah. Okay, Kathy. Can I just clarify? And this last question, I, th- I think we meant to. Yeah. Yep. Um, yes. So, so um, give me the two. So, so I think I've always read it as walking in the light is trying to be this perfect yeah. right person. That yep. quite and so, so the, the way you have been reading it's wrong. Yep. So it's not about being this perfect right person yet. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. So is the right way to read it walking in the light is not about being perfect, it's about being honest about your sin, it's about letting the light expose your sin and yeah. being willing to sit under that. Yeah. So Kathy's asking, is walking in the light about being willing to acknowledge your sin and expose it and, and confess it? Um yes, but walking in the light fundamentally is about um entering this entering God's kingdom. Uh, and uh, receiving God's salvation of, you know, the new covenant, and that will express itself in a life of confession of sin and a life of love and so on. 
Uh, and so the character of someone who knows God and walks in the light is that they confess their sins. Uh, they, they step out, they, they live as people who are living in the light, confess sin, love one another, love God, and so on. Yeah. Okay, now, so I want to ask you a few questions to uh, finish up. Firstly, are you walking in the light? Right? Are you actually, and, and, and uh, gee, I really pray that we are all uh, in the light, uh, and that is we've come to recognize Jesus and we receive purification of sins from him. But sometimes we can hide our sin, and it's a dangerous thing, isn't it? Or minimize our sin, somehow deny it. Uh, And I reckon there's a real temptation for us pastors to do this. And what we need to do is come clean primarily with God as an ongoing practice of our lives and come clean with one another. And I'm not saying be an open book. Right? Some people just don't cope with some of your sin. Right? And so, but, 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 but not hiding it, uh, but bringing it into the, into the light. Uh, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, purify us from all unrighteousness. Second question, how are you trying to create fellowship? The temptation is to put energy and confidence in the cool vibe, uh, the thing that everyone finds attractive, Uh, the friendly place, the friendly church. Those things have their place, but they're secondary. It is the gospel of Jesus risen from the dead that creates fellowship. But the the irony with the gospel is it creates division as well. It's a message that has always created persecution and division, probably primarily. And yet, it's the message that divides that is also the message that brings people into fellowship. Uh, thirdly, are you expressing that fellowship? And so uh, it sort of brings me back to where I started. I started off talking about the tragedy of loneliness, how even in our marriages we can feel acute loneliness. Even in ministry, when we're surrounded by people, uh, we can feel acute loneliness. And I reckon, I haven't thought really deeply into this, but I reckon... Part of the reason we feel lonely is that we often carry burdens uh, and even secrets that most people in our church don't understand or really appreciate. They just don't get it. Uh, And I'm not saying they're silly or anything like that. Um, Sometimes there is stuff I know about certain members of our church that weighs really heavily on me. And I've actually got to work out what do I do with this uh, and people sometimes perceive my heaviness. They can actually see that I'm burdened with something or other, but I, I'm not always in a position to, sh- to, to share that with them because it's just not appropriate. You know, these are people that they know and love. And, and, so, um, and so I reckon that sort of, that can create a feeling of isolation when we carry burdens that sometimes are hard to share with others. But... When you read the New Testament, you realise Jesus experienced the same thing, only in a much more profound way. You know, you look at the burdens he carried and how ignorant his followers were of what was going on. They were just oblivious. Uh, They just didn't get it. Or the same with the Apostle Paul. He speaks about the burden of his anxiety for the churches and his reputation was so often pulled down, his motives were 
not understood. But here's the thing with both of Jesus and Paul. They still had this enormous capacity for genuine loving relationship with those they cared for. Um, We need to imitate that example. Opening ourselves up for real genuine fellowship with those we minister to, even if they don't understand completely the sort of burdens that we carry. So that, you, know, I, you feel the tension, but you look at Jesus and the Apostle Paul, you see that that is, uh, that is the character of it. All right, and finally, what would make your joy complete? For John, what is it that makes his joy complete? He's writing this letter. He wants to make his joy complete. How is that going to come about? This is like a test to see if you've been listening. Um, Verse 4. Verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. Uh, John is writing this letter proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, the Christ risen from the dead, and the result is that it will make our joy complete. That's a great encouragement for ministry, isn't it? You know, because sometimes we drag ourselves around and we feel the heaviness of ministry and you feel the, you know, the kickbacks and so on. But we preach a gospel that will draw people into fellowship with God and with one another and it will make our joy complete. Uh, and we ought to enjoy that. Uh, that's something to be really encouraged by. I'm going to lead us in prayer and then hand over to you guys. Oh God, our Father, we want to thank you so much that the light has dawned, uh, that Jesus has come into our world, uh, that he's driving out the darkness even now. And Father, we thank you that we are amongst those who have stepped into the light, uh, that the place where we could not possibly dwell because of our sin and yet Through Jesus, our sins have been purified so that we can live in the light as your precious children. Uh, And we want to thank you so much for that. And Father, we pray that we will continue to walk in the light, that we will not fall prey to that temptation to deny or minimise our sin, uh, to somehow hide it from you or from others. But Father, we pray that we will be quick to confess our sins, that we will express fellowship uh, in the gospel, real fellowship. Father, we pray that we won't look to other things, but that we will look to the gospel uh, that will create uh, genuine churches and gatherings of your people. And Father, we pray that you'll teach us to be able to enjoy that fellowship even when we carry burdens that others don't necessarily understand Father, we pray that we will still open ourselves up for rich, genuine relationships. And we pray that that will be especially true of our marriages. And we pray that today and tomorrow will really strengthen our marriages. And Father, we do thank you that all your purposes are just so joyful uh, and so life-affirming and so good. And Father, we pray that you will encourage us with this word and with our time together. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.